Hello, and welcome to the Subnormal Podcast. My name is Lauren, and this is a podcast all about artists and their spiritual work, where I interview artists with spiritual practices to see how those spiritual practices influence their art and vice versa. Today, I'm sharing with you the very last podcast of 2020. If you are listening to this on the day it's put out, happy almost new year. I'm so excited that 2020 is on its way out, as I'm sure most of us are. It's been a super weird year, filled with lots of ups and downs for a lot of us, but I do want to give 2020 some gratitude. Honestly, there was one good thing, at least, that came out of all of this, and that was this podcast. Even though I've been dreaming up this podcast for some time before the lockdown in March, it wasn't until the lockdown that I was really inspired to make it happen, somewhat out of desperation to connect with people, and while having the space in my studio to record, it felt really important to do it now. And so I'm really thankful that you are here if you're a returning listener. And if this is your first time, welcome. Today's episode is with Miriam, a Brooklyn-based artist who not only is an artist, but is working at the Pratt Institute to get her degree in art therapy. And that's what we spend a lot of time talking about. Her work in the art therapy field is super fascinating. I have personally been super interested in this field for a long time, just with the concept of really using art as a holistic tool to help in someone's healing. So talking with Miriam was really fascinating for me personally, but Miriam's work is also incredibly beautiful. Miriam is a multifaceted artist, as I feel like most of our artists are on here. Um, but I mean that in that Miriam uses a lot of different modalities or, well, mediums when exploring her creative world. Her work, to me, feels very linear most of the time. There's a lot of work with lines undulating and moving a lot of detail and a lot of her old work and even her painting has a lot of lines working in these ways to combine organic lines with very spiritual images in the sacred geometry sort of fashion. So definitely check out her work. My Mindful Manifestation is where you can find her on Instagram. And you can also find her work online at her website, mymindfulmanifestation.com. I do want to dive in, but before we do that, a little bit of housekeeping. I just put out my website a few weeks ago, or well, a little over a week ago, <laughs> Actually, it feels like ages. This whole year has felt like lifetimes. But I put out my website, subnormalchild.com, on the 21st. And I wanted to share a little announcement. Speaking of art that is holistic and spiritual, I am teaching my first workshop of the year 
um, that is open to the public on January 23rd. And that is a intuitive art workshop called Drawing Within. So if you're interested in grounding your art practice in a spiritual way, or just exploring what intuitive art can be and what it can look like for you, please make sure you check out my website, subnormalchild.com, and that'll be under services or offerings in the workshop area. So with that said, thank you so much for being here. I hope that you have been setting some time putting together your intentions for the new year, setting aside some time to cleanse your space, get grounded in what you want for this new year. But with that said, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Miriam. I found it super fascinating and let's just dive right in. So right now I'm working on my graduate degree in art therapy. Um, it's teaching me a lot about different populations and the way they respond to artwork. And my favorite thing about learning this is the way that different people kind of teach me about myself because I really get to gain like a lot of perspectives from different people. So that's my favorite part. And I guess like, the biggest part of that that I'm working on is my thesis, which is about psychedelic integration with art therapy. So just kind of using art in the process of like a non-ordinary state experience and seeing how it helps people uh, like dive into that experience and integrate it into their lives. And how did you get into this subject personally? Is this kind of like something that you're personally passionate about in your own life or something that you kind of picked up while following in this uh, field? Mm -hmm. Well, the psychedelic integration part was something I was exploring previously to the degree. And uh, then when I started, I realized I can actually integrate them. Like I had no idea I could do that before. But then when I started the degree, I was like pretty wary. My professors were like very encouraging, but because it's like a non-federally legalized um, practice, it's, it was hard for me to envision it as like a realistic um, research topic. Mm -hmm. So once I started like actually finding people who have been studying this for a while, I realized I could really dive in and study it on like a professional level. <laughs> Yeah. What has kind of been, how have you been going about your, your, your study of this? Has it mostly been talking to people within the field? Have you actually maybe met with people who are using like these substances while making art? What, how does this work? Yeah. So I'm 
approaching it from a few different directions. Mm -hmm. um, firstly, I'm like trying to find previously done research studies on the separate topics of art therapy and psychedelic integration. So there's a lot of, as you know, probably like MAPS is a big organization that like publishes huge studies and that's like a really good resource for people who are interested in psychedelic yeah. therapy. Um, and from the other approach, it's just finding people who are practicing um, psychedelic therapy as clinicians and seeing how their experience in their um, state, because it's different for all states, and seeing how their experience like varies with their clients according to like what hallucinogen they're using or what kind of artwork they're making. So it's just kind of like surveying different experiences. And mm -hmm. I'm also taking surveys like from different um, patients or just participants who have had like a non-ordinary state experience and made art. And I'm curious about like, how did they feel differently after making art? Or is there something they learned from looking back at the artwork? Kind of those questions. Yeah. What has been a big takeaway from you as you've been going through and researching? What's a, a big takeaway around this? Mm -hmm. Well, a big theme that I'm finding is that no matter what people's experiences are, they have felt more creative after the fact. They felt mm -hmm. like now that they are moving on as artists or just regular emotional human beings, they can tap into a creative outlet more easily because they've kind of seen it happen in this non-ordinary state. It's really mm. cool for me. I'm very inspired by that like potential. Yeah, that's, that's super fascinating. I also find, I guess the question I have because I am the type of person who does not like trying to make art with psychedelics. I just can't do it. I become very not good at art anymore and like just can't focus on anything but watching paint dry. Um, <laughs> I'm curious, is there a lot of people in that, but like, like they can't really function that well making art, but feel inspired afterwards? Or is it more of the opposite where people feel really inspired in the moment? Mm -hmm. I think the people who have responded to my surveys are more often those who've had the artistic experience during their hallucinogenic like phase. Um, but I definitely relate to that experience where like my hands just kind of felt dysfunctional during that kind of psychedelic experience. And like, I didn't want to make art at the time. So I think the experience definitely varies and I totally get, I totally get that aspect too. Yeah. No, that's super fascinating as far as like opening up people to wanting to have a creative experience. Getting back to like, what, what brought you into wanting to kind of get into art therapy to begin with? Sure. So, I mean, I was, I was always interested in psychology mm -hmm. and in college, actually, I got into visual art. That was like the first time I've I explored visual art and then I really got into it and I discovered the field of art therapy as like a joining forces of psychology and art. And I just went full, you know, I went full throttle into that field. So since then I've been pretty dedicated and I was interested in the way 
like a like a how do I explain this? I was really interested in how a transformative experience can transform someone's lives for the rest of their life. Like while I was in college studying psychology and studying virtual art, I also started exploring psychedelics. And for me, that was a huge transformative experience. So Mm -hmm. that's where like all of it tied together for me because I was like, wow, this is very uh, enhancing for me as like a, a therapeutic process. It really opened my mind to like different possibilities in my life. It really opened my mind to the possibility of managing my anxiety, managing my like very extreme emotions at times. So that's where I'm interested in is like how it teaches people to open their minds to the potential of healing. Ooh, that's really good. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense as someone who has both those backgrounds. It's actually a really beautiful marriage. Are you kind of hoping to work with adults or children or where do you see yourself kind of growing with that after school? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the field of art therapy is uh, very based in like licensing and certifications. So Mm -hmm. first I would have to get like just my license going and I'm pretty open to the line of work that would entail but ideally working with psychedelics i would want to work with um adults or late adolescents like 18 and up basically my Mm. thesis study is primarily focused in um 18 and up with um anxiety disorders Mm -hmm. so that's like ideally the population i'm interested in working with oh so you would want to continue kind of in this vein then with using psychedelics as well as the art to create a cohesive healing experience. Yeah, there's a small community out there that's like pioneering this um, concept of psychedelic art therapy. Mm-hmm. So the, if, you'll, if you search online, you'll find some people um, who are like using that in their work either art in their psychedelic therapy or psychedelics in their art therapy. It coincides pretty, pretty well and easily. And the idea of psychedelics are pretty open based to whatever like the state um, approves of, or it could also just be a non-ordinary state experience without the external source. So it could be like a yoga teaching with art therapy, something like that. Interesting. I haven't heard of like combining that necessarily. That what you said earlier brings up a good point though. I know Oregon, I believe is the only state that's like here you go, have at it for quite a few things. Would you have do these people who who are in this field and work like this do they have to reg- regulate themselves to certain states then? Yeah, primarily the states we're talking about are Oregon, um, Boulder, Colorado has a lot of um, rules that allow for this kind of stuff. And also many urban areas have like other drugs like ketamine in New York is allowed. So ketamine therapy is a big thing in New York right now. And then there's also the research studies. So if if you can't find a clinician who's doing it like 
quote unquote legally, you can do it under a research study in your area, or you could al always find someone underground doing it, which is just everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome to know. Also really surprising that ketamine um, is legal in New York, because I, I honestly haven't experienced um, people with that outside of a festival. So I guess right. it really is about the setting and the intention. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just like with any other drug, you really want to be careful with set and setting. But with ketamine, I know that the, the primar primary healing benefits are for depression. So mm -hmm. that's what they're using it for in the therapeutic um, environment. Is there a specific drug that you're kind of most looking at in your own research paper and hoping to continue working with them? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm primarily focused with um, LSD, which is uh, a synthetic um, hallucinogen. So it's pretty similar to psilocybin, um, but it has its different components. So I find that it's a little more accessible, which is like another aspect to psychedelic therapy is accessibility, which is like mm. a whole other um, rabbit hole. <laughs> we could talk about. Um, and yeah, so that's why I'm interested in LSD going mm. forward. Awesome. As far as LSD goes, have you personally had really great experiences with LSD that have kind of influenced you to want to work with that primarily? Or is it mostly from your studying that you've been finding this connection? It's a good question. Um, I really have like a pretty limited experience with hallucinogens. And LSD is the main one. So I've just also um, geared toward that because of my personal experience, but also because of what I've found in studies. It's one of the most commonly used um, medicine in studies. So there's psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA. Those are like the primary ones and ketamine. So mm. yeah, it's like very personal choice. And I really could have gone in any other direction, but just in, as a matter of narrowing it down, I had to choose one. So this is the one I went with. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. If that's also the thing that you have more experience with, I feel like, yeah, you should probably stick to where you have that relationship for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I just had such a creative experience with it that um, I was like happy to go in that direction. That's beautiful. What, back into your past, um, what was your experience with, um, with LSD and creating, like, what did you make or what kind of came up for you? Sure. Well, I could think of one very specific experience. It's actually where you and I met Lauren at Unifier Festival. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had like, because it was in such a beautiful campground and like the forest there is very inspiring i think that added to the experience where i really didn't have to try that hard to be inspired there so with mm. the added bonus of being on like a hallucinogen i felt very inspired by my surroundings and so i was uh for the most of that weekend just drawing in my journal different like patterns different um nature patterns i saw and from there i was able to abstractly expand on it so there were times when like 
I was sitting next to someone who was on actually a different drug. And because their, I guess, vibe didn't align with mine, I had to stop drawing or my drawing became very rigid and like unappealing. So Mm. it really showed with like the setting how affected I was. And like when I moved away and like I started working somewhere else, it became more fluid and open. So it's just interesting how that experience played out for me. Yeah, no, that's super fascinating because I do, I do think with psychedelics, it's very, it's delicate. Your whole experience is delicate. It can very easily be influenced by things around you. So that's very beautiful to see kind of how that mixed and melded. when you use psychedelics or in your own work, you're primarily pen and ink, I feel like, this around now, right? Yeah, it's the most accessible for me. So I, I love to use all my pens, my markers, anything like liquid-based, I tend to uh, appeal toward. <laughs> it's just yeah. like I, I need the least um, prep for that kind of stuff. Sure. Absolutely. And I guess to relate back to your experience that you're talking about, did that experience kind of really change your way of working with art or mark making? Was there kind of, did you see that lasting effect from that initial experience? I think so. Um, It's hard to tell because when I had that experience, I was in the midst of like developing my artistic style. So Mm -hmm. It's pretty hard to tell, but I think it definitely has in the sense of how I approach making artwork. Like I, I feel more confident because I had that difficult experience. So going forward, it kind of gave me the confidence that like, if I wasn't sure what to make, or if I wasn't sure how to make it, I could just sit down and start because I was in a rough place before. Like I've had it more challenging than I do sober. Do you know what I mean? So it gave me that push of confidence to like just make the creative outlet I need versus like uh, not doing it because I'm doubting myself. Mm, That's beautiful. That's a really like profound moment. Yeah. It really like more affected for me, my confidence than it did anything else, which is why I'm sure it affects people with anxiety and depression so deeply because a lot of that, um, a lot of the setbacks there are self-confidence and like a sense of safety with yourself. Mm. I love that. That's so beautiful because I feel like, and, and this is like my, my own personal belief system around art. The only difference between, uh, someone who went to art school and someone who didn't is confidence in making mistakes, right? Like that's really all it is. You, you work years and years just to build up confidence to make a mistake because you're going to regardless of what what your training is right right yeah and a huge thing like a lot of my clients have when they're just starting out with art therapy is like well i don't know if i'm going to do a good job with this art piece and it's for us Mm. as clinicians not the goal to focus on the results it's way more important like to focus on the process and not necessarily getting it right as we're doing it. So it takes away a lot of the pressure, I think. Yeah. Ooh, that's beautiful too. I really appreciate what you're saying. Cause like, I don't know, I, I work in a school 
And so all the time I'm having to push kids to be like, it's about the process, not the final thing. Just keep pushing. And I feel like our society literally makes us believe that if it's not good, it's not worth it. So it's really Mm -hmm. powerful. Yeah, I could tell that like with academics, like other teachers are pressuring them to do it right. So I'm sure with art, I mean, I've been an art teacher too. So I, I definitely know like the pressure kids are under and it's very, um, it's a little sad. Yeah. <laughs> I wish that there was like a better way to, to help them out of that. Yeah. No, it's, it's super real. Um, but back to your personal work, I'm curious Besides your thesis, what (laughs) personal work are you um, creating, if any, or if you're doing that at all? Yeah. I mean, I'm always, like, working on little projects. Like, right now, I acquired a few seashells, and a friend of mine was able to drill holes in them. So now I'm making jewelry out of seashells, which is honestly really getting me through this cold weather because it's reminding me of my love for the beach (laughs) and that warm weather. So these little projects I have, I'm also, um, as I, as you know, making a podcast with my friend who lives in Florida. So we're doing like this long distance, um, friendship podcast. And that's really exciting for us. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. And would you mind telling us what your podcast is about? Oh, sure. It's, it's really about a lot of different things. It's focused on the way people tend to uh, talk about topics in like a socialized pressure way. So we're trying to normalize these topics and like, and it's okay to not know about them kind of way. So our most recent um, episode actually was about astrology, just because both of us really love astrology and we didn't know a lot about it in terms of like the history and the background and how to study it. So we did our own research and we made a podcast about it just to talk about like how much we didn't know. And we wanted to get uh, in, in experience from our viewers or listeners, like how much they don't know and how much they still uh, kind of look at it for their identity or do they look at it from their, for their identity. So a lot of it is dependent on like listener viewership, like getting responses from listeners so that we can feature them. And it's a lot of fun to make. <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. I feel like that also, to me, it sounds like it kind of ties into the way that you're doing your studying, the way you're doing your thesis, where you're literally like grabbing people and kind of like getting their information, getting their feedback or like receiving like what others are thinking around that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, that's really funny. I'm really getting to know Google Forms. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Google Forms is low-key, really fun. Like, just make a yeah. dumb form for anything. <laughs> it's so easy. I love it. It's becoming so useful, and it's very user-friendly. Yeah. And I'm also curious, um, as you've been moving through, like, your thesis, your projects, all of this, do you find that your work in your thesis with your podcast is any of that having an influence on the art that you make personally or is that kind of just what its own thing that's such a good question well everything in my life affects the other things you know what i mean especially now 
in this pandemic where like I'm doing everything from home and I'm doing everything in like my one space that I have. So everything kind of gets jumbled. So I'm definitely learning a lot about compartmentalization. <laughs> but mm. in terms of like my work affecting my artwork, I think it is in the sense that my artwork is tending to be less detail oriented than it has in the past. Because in the past, I've focused on mandalas and how many details I can like fit in these little mandalas with my fine liner pen pens. But now I'm like, I, I'm just going to draw freehand whatever I want, whatever illustrations I want, because everything else in my life is so detail oriented right now. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And that, yeah. I was looking through your work before and that was what stood out to me. Your mandala work specifically around um, the astrological signs and seeing all that detail. And that makes a whole lot of sense around like just simplifying your life, just the little things. Um, What has kind of been a, a thing about human behavior that you've noticed in relationship to art in relationship to these psychedelics? Well, Unfortunately, right now, I'm not working with psychedelics with my clients. Um, I'm working primarily with um, young adolescents or parents and their very young children. So it's a wide range of people, but none of them are getting my um, my take on the psychedelic side of my work. <laughs> so that's like a little secret I have. But um, a big theme I get from a lot of my clients, no matter what they're going through, is the metaphorical um, benefits they get from their artwork. So no matter what they're drawing, they tend to make associations from their drawings to their life and to their emotions. So mm-hmm. they get a much bigger sense of gratitude for the things in their life and the things they're going through because they're seeing it in a symbolic image on their paper. It's like externalizing it for them. And they're seeing it for the first time, like from a bird's eye view or just from a different perspective. And they really gain a lot of um, empathy for themselves, I think. Oh, especially with self-empathy. I think that's, that's like a, a thing I, I forget about as well. It's so important. Um, as you're seeing people work, is there any elements or imagery that, that pops up a lot that you've kind of noticed or observed? Right. That's a good question. I mean, a lot of my work tends to be around nature or like a specific color for a specific emotion. Like let's Mm -hmm. identify how we feel about um, this color or how do you identify in nature? Like how would you, introduce yourself if you were a landscape something like that so that tends to come up based on just what I'm um, advising or encouraging from my clients so there's that theme but they no matter what like they tend to gravitate to something consistently so if they're into magical characters they'll consistently bring that into their artwork no matter what I'm asking them and yeah basically. It's really like client independent. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. I was just for a moment, I was like, is there like some weird symbol in the zeitgeist that all these people are drawing? Because that would be really cool. But that also sounds like mad mothman, like, yeah, but that's, that's a real, 
thing. Like the collective unconscious is huge in art therapy. We study a lot of Jungian theory and it comes up a lot. And especially in groups, when you're having a group session, sometimes there's like a symbol, a symbol coming up among group members based on the conversation they had before. And whenever that happens, it's astounding. Like they'll use the same patterns and colors. They might even place it like on the same place on the paper. And that just goes to show how like unified the group is or how powerful the discussion was, something like that. And it's always um, a huge takeaway for everyone in the group. Ooh, that sounds really powerful. So that is, that is a thing. And has that been something that you've um, witnessed yourself? It, I've witnessed it a few times. And what's fascinating to me is that it still happens over like Zoom group sessions because you're not even in the same room. But just the conversation is provoking a certain feeling or imagery for people that just happens to be the same. And when everyone like puts it up to their camera, it's like, whoa, like, where did that come from that you guys just had the same thought? And it also could be like, maybe it's not um, the conversation, but the ongoing relationship. Maybe it's like the fifth session and these people are creating like relationships. So that could have to do with it too. But it's always fascinating. (laughs) Ooh, that's really awesome. Yeah, it definitely happens. It's not like a magical concept. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's super, super fascinating through Zoom too, to see that that connection still present. Yeah. And it creates just this ongoing connection for the group, which just elevates the sense of trust in everyone like attending, which kind of uh, pushes their incentive to keep going because they realize like they're making connections, even though they're at home or even though they feel like not a lot is going for them, you know? Mm-hmm. No, that's super fascinating. It's very powerful work. Yeah. I'm curious. So as an art teacher, and now that I, I just stepped into a role as an SEL teacher on top of that, um, one thing that my coworker brought up to me was this idea of trauma-informed um, teaching. And I'm just curious as far as like in your, cause of course you're trauma informed because you're, mm-hmm. uh, that that's literally what you're doing. I'm curious around the idea of having everyone show their art at the end, because that's one thing I avoid doing or like really pushing kids on. Like we do it at the end, but I don't really push kids on it because I don't want to, um, I don't want kids to feel weird about Mm -hmm. showing their work or like insecure. But I'm curious, is that kind of really important in your, in your setting? Is that something that someone can, you know, say, you know what, I don't want to show my artwork. I'm what's your thoughts around trauma informed in that sort of setting? Right. Um, It's a very good question. I think it really depends on the goals of the group and Mm -hmm. the population like coming into the group, but in general, we always promote like the optional choice of sharing. And uh, it's not always that we all share at the same time. Like usually we'll say, all right, now that everyone's maybe done drawing, does anyone want to share what they've made? And 
we can also preface it like you don't have to share your artwork you could just talk about your experience so we make it very um mm. open-ended for whoever is ready to share because we don't want like you know to put any unnecessary pressure on our clients yeah yeah no that's that's beautiful that's really helpful because as someone who this is not you know you have more experience in what trauma-informed looks like than I do. So it's really nice to to hear you say that because I do think it's really important. And like, from my standpoint, I would want to know, like, am I doing the right thing in that sort of setting? Because it's really important to, to make people feel safe. I think that's yeah. also what you probably are really big on is is creating that safe space. Right, exactly. Creating the safe space is really important, which is why I believe it's important to also make artwork as the facilitator, because mm -hmm. that makes them feel like I'm part of the process, I'm doing it with them. And in case no one wants to share, I can say, okay, I'll go first. Here's what I made. And lead as like a jumping off point. Mm, that's That's interesting to bring that up. Do you feel like show because you are an artist you are talented do you feel like not that no one is like people are talented wow i said that in the worst way i feel like the most underhanded like, no i understand <laughs> but you know you are an artist with that background do you feel like people might look at your art and feel more intimidated by it or do you think it encourages them what are your thoughts yeah i get that feeling all the time um and it's not that i want to like quote unquote, dumb down my artwork, but I try to tend to be more abstract than I would in my personal style, like more um, focused on the goal of the, of that session versus what I would make personally if I was the client. So yeah, I definitely keep that in mind um, when I'm show when I'm sharing my artwork. Yeah. And on that, actually, I'm really curious, what are, what are the goals usually in a session, whether it's group or one-on-one? -on -one? Is there, like, what are your goals or, with your groups? Yeah, um, it really depends, you know, like where we are at in the group, um, because from what I'm learning, it's a lot about the process within the relationship. So, in the beginning, it'll be all about introducing yourself and like for a few sessions you'll do, or you may do a few different, they're called art directives um, or like an experiential, something that's kind of like an art project for that session, but it can go according to the client's needs. So in the beginning, it'll be all about like introduce yourself through a color or like I said earlier, introduce yourself through a landscape and we'll take some time, sometimes there'll be music, but as the group gets more intimate and vulnerable, you can start to introduce more um, vulnerable topics. But on top of that, there's also like different mini directives you can introduce, like a mindfulness exercise at the beginning, just to get the group grounded into the space and with each other. So for like the first 10 minutes of the session, I might ask everyone in the group to um, fill in a circle, like to, just to make their own mandala, um, just as a form of like free flow art making, just to get everyone in the zone and like into like a steady breath. I might have like a breathing exercise along with that. So yeah, it definitely depends on the client's needs 
and where we're at in the relationship. Mm, that's beautiful. I really love the idea of introducing yourself through a color too. How would you introduce yourself as a color today? Oh, that's a good question. I think um, oftentimes I'm, all, I'm feeling purple because my feelings of purple are uh, calm and elevated. Like, you know, I don't know. A lot of people don't know, but like the chakra levels, there's the seventh level is purple. So I resonate with that because of like the power it can bring to your mindset. So Mm -hmm. that's the color I'm choosing. (laughs) What about you, Lauren? I love that. Um, I would say today I'm feeling... That's so hard. I ask my kids this a lot, though, Um, because we talk about color zones. I feel like I am personally um, a blue-green because I'm feeling very calm and not like super tired, but just in a calmer state today. I feel like yesterday with the full moon and the eclipse, I just like was all over the place, wah-wah-wee-wah kind of feeling. But yeah, blue-green is the vibe today. That's so nice to enter the rest of the week with that. (laughs) Now that we're done with whatever yesterday was, it's like, oh, we can do the rest now. We can move on. Yeah. Um, Actually, that brings me to a question I wanted to ask you. What are your spiritual practices? That's also a very good question. Um, I think... I would say that my artwork is my spiritual practice. I have gone through many different um, developments with that. I grew up learning Judaism as a religion and not really resonating with it. I had to find my own form of spirituality. So I use meditation in my artwork. Like I meditate either before or while I'm making artwork. So that's a part of it. And I really just feel a lot more connected to myself and like a higher state after I've made, I, after I've made art, artwork. So that's, wow. that's how I would answer that. <laughs> I love that. I love, because I, it's really powerful using art as a spiritual tool. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I try not to let it get too deep for me because Mm. I always want it to be uh, a source of fun and like letting go. So I only ever use it as like a profound um, form of spiritual spirituality when I'm doing it on like either in my art therapy, like I have a therapist and she's an art therapist and she's also a spiritual practitioner. So shout out to her. Like I feel much more spiritually elevated after my sessions with her, but outside of that and like outside of like a journaling process, it won't be too profound or deep for me because I like to keep it light just so I can like cope with my everyday stress. That's totally fair. I feel like more people are going with that, especially now, like this year in particular, it's like the low, low maintenance spirituality is really where it's at. Yeah, exactly. 
everything is about accessibility and making things easy because everything else in life is already so hard. Yeah. And actually on that note, I'm curious, um, when it comes to art therapy, what are your thoughts around accessibility with it? Is it something that's you find is really accessible for your clients or is this, cause I've never experienced art therapy myself, like in that sort of clinical quote unquote setting. So I'm curious because as someone who's looking for a therapist, I know that can be really challenging. How is that for your clients? Yeah, it's definitely hard if you're looking for a personal art therapist just on your own. And if you don't have insurance, it's definitely way too expensive to be acceptable. Um, But my clients um, tend to be referred either through a teacher that saw behavioral issues or uh, their parents are having issues at home and they'll be referred to our program where we provide either free or like accessibly affordable services because it's a nonprofit. So there's a lot of programs like that out there where if you meet certain needs, you can totally be eligible for those services. So it, It's accessible. We're trying to make it more accessible through nonprofits, but it's really hard. And then on the other side of that, you have the fact that it's a visual process. And like, if you're blind, how do you, how do you deal with that? So Mm. we're working with that aspect too. Like there's ways to approach art therapy in like a, a handicapped way. So if like, you have um, arthritis or different or difficulties using your hands. There's the theory of like third hand art therapist where like you speak with the client and you can do it for them and you could speak about it like through the artwork that you've made. There's different ways to approach it, but it's definitely all considered throughout your training and throughout your practice as like a professional clinician. That's super fascinating with the third hand idea, because that's not even something that I really thought about, but makes a whole lot of sense. Have you personally worked with any clients that with that way where they like describe something to you? Not primarily because they've had difficulties, but if I've seen that they were just not interested in making artwork, like they were so emotionally withdrawn, I would say something like, do you want to tell me what you want to draw and I'll draw it for you? And we can go from there. There's also another approach that's like opening up right now for me, at least because I'm new to this field. So telehealth is new to me and Mm -hmm. working over telehealth, I'm finding all these tools online that we can actually use the computer to make artwork. So that's like another element where like, if they don't have the supplies at home, then they can use the computer tools that we're kind of learning at the same time to do it together. But on that note, actually, like normally, if you start art therapy in a setting where you're at home and you can't go to the, uh, the office, usually the office will send supplies to your home. So like for no extra charge. So that should always be like part of your services because it's already so expensive. We should at least give you a little kit a supply kit. Yes, absolutely. So then you can make art after 
or outside of your sessions as well, do you find that your clients actually, on that note, work on art outside of your sessions once you kind of get the ball rolling? Um, it really depends on the client, but definitely some clients I've seen. Um, right now I'm working with parents and their children and they're using the artwork with their kids. So it's like seeing how the practice is being implemented on their like daily schedule and like how they're practicing what we're learning in the session. So to see it like develop between weeks is, is really fascinating. Like we encourage that a lot of the time. Beautiful. I love that. I think that's really awesome as well. Bringing the parents into it. Do you, do you see with the, with that sort of clientele, are you kind of asking the parents to draw as well? Do they get involved over time? What does that look like? Sure. So with this group specifically, it's like kind of like a mommy and me program. The kids mm -hmm. are three to five and the moms are really busy, like either dealing with the rest of their family or with their own work and school. So they are attending a parent group first and then the parent child group. So in the parent group, we'll do, um, something just with the parents and in that group like we encourage them to share what they've made personally but in the parent child group it's focused on the skill that they're encouraging their child to learn so they're more um, following the lead of their child in the artwork and mm. the child is is encouraged to explore that material on their own oh i like that a lot I think that sounds, especially as a teacher who works with kindergarten, those five-year-olds, I'm like, oh, yes, I love that. That's so, so beautiful to see that merger. Right. They really need a lot more of that independence and like leading the parents in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good switch up for them to, to give them that, that ability to be a little more autonomous is mm -hmm. really powerful. Exactly. And we're seeing the powers of it. I mean, I'm seeing it for the first time, but like my supervisor, she's seeing it for the first time over Zoom. And we're just fascinated by how it's still working pretty well, even though like this is kind of a pilot program to do it virtually. And mm -hmm. it's hard because, you know, with kids, you want to be in person, like handling the materials. But we're seeing that like the parents have this new responsibility of handling the materials, but also letting the child lead in the artwork. So it's really fascinating to see how it's playing out. Yeah, that's super beautiful, super powerful. What is for you um, kind of your bigger goals for like future endeavors? Are you hoping to combine your, your, your artistic practice with your with what you're learning to implement like a studio? What are your big, big vision for the future? It's a really good question. I have a lot of different visions that I've like developed. Um, I think like primarily I'm really interested in the idea of like a nonprofit art gallery slash studio where people can um, expose their art, but also gain insight into like their process as artists from other art therapists so it would be a space where people are giving feedback for each other because they've had experience in this emotional process but they're also able to be uh 
like visual artists displaying their work. Yeah. But on the other side of that, I'm really interested in uh, getting the psychedelic therapy training, which takes a while. And it's something like I see myself doing after I graduate. So that's always like in the back of my mind. I really want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Where would you, where would you go to do that? Um, that's a good question. I think I would have to go to Boulder. I'm not really sure, but I know that they do courses online, so it's possible I could always do it from where I live in Brooklyn, which would be awesome. Yeah. Also moving to Boulder would probably be pretty cool, but yeah, that would be really remarkable, but that's really fascinating trying to get that, um, that sort of certification online when it feels like it needs to be, it's a very personal experience, you know? Right. I mean, this pandemic has definitely stretched our potential for online learning and processing. It's shown us how much potential there is like profoundly. I mean, I never expected like so much work to be done through this way. And I think that it's still a huge setback for a lot of people. Cause I understand that people just don't get the same responses over uh, the camera. So I have that in mind too. So it's just a lot to deal with, but I am still like excited and astounded by the work that has been done mm. over this uh, modality. <laughs> yeah. And actually to go back to, um, that switch to kind of hone in. Did you start working with clients outside of um, Zoom? So before the pandemic hit, or has this been a more newer thing? So do you see a difference? Yeah. So my program is a two-year program. And the first year is when you start your internship. So I was working in person last year. And in the, like, in the middle of the year in March, we did have to go virtual. So I saw it right away, like the difference. A lot of my clients, like they just dropped services. Um, so we saw a huge uh, decrease in attendance in general, which just makes sense to me. Um, but, and right now we're having the same problem. So I'm in this new internship this year um, from scratch and I'm seeing already like, even though these people who have been in this program for a while, are still having difficulties showing up online. So yeah, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. <laughs> I have seen both sides. Mm. Yeah. Attendance is definitely a, a strange thing that you wouldn't think would be an issue because you literally don't have to go anywhere. Do you feel like some of that attendance issue comes with technology or do you think it's just the switch that's kind of throwing people off? That's a good question. I'm not really sure. Um, for me, I would feel that the switch is one aspect of it, like having this freedom to go or not. It's now in your shoes because you're not um, expected to go anywhere. All you have to do is either sign on or not sign on. So I think that like sense of freedom is being um, taken advantage of like in a good way. Some people need to not show up. And I totally respect that. So I think that has to do with it a lot of the time. Yeah. That's super fascinating to think about how it's kind of a mixed bag where there's this like 
level of accessibility because now you don't have to travel, but then there's a different, there's on, on the other side, your accessibility might be limited because of your technology. But then in the, in the paradigm is this whole concept that it's so easy to just not. Mm-hmm. Is- I mean, a lot of for my cli- a lot of my clients, if they signed on, they'd be like in the bathroom because that's the only private space in the home that they have. So it's just more comfortable mm-hmm. for them not to show up because they don't want that shame and guilt to have to show up because they're like sitting in the bath or something. If that makes sense, everyone's like looking for this spe- sense of confidentiality and. Some people just don't have it, and some people prefer not to be in a non-confidential space. Yeah, that's an interesting um, layer to it. That's super fascinating. Right. Actually, confidentiality is a huge thing that kind of the concept of it was like turned upside down when we went virtual because that was such a big factor that we were learning up until that point. And then when everyone was signing in from home, everyone was asking each other, well, if the parents are in the room, how is this confidential? And it's like, you no longer have to be confidential because it's the client's choice if they're comfortable with that. So the idea of like it needing to be confidential just kind of was kicked out the door, which was really hard for, I mean, it's still hard for me to learn. So yeah, that's just an aspect that is uh, really layered and nuanced. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. That does add a very perplexing layer to the work that you do. Right. Like for example, last year I was working with elementary school kids and if they signed on with the parent, some of the time the parent in the background would be like, listen to your teacher. She should be, you should be doing it right. Like that kind of, um, you know, dialogue when for art therapy, it's really not about doing it right or listening even, it's about showing up and just being who you need to be for an hour. So that was frustrating for me, like as an art therapy intern, to have to deal with that added aspect of like, now I have to explain to this parent that it's okay, whatever they're doing, (laughs) which is a hard concept, like I get it. It's just a, a very new territory. Yeah, that's interesting to hear you say that because I have experienced that as well, of course, where it's like, just relax. Your kid's doing fine. They're not like touching the camera or something. So it's totally whatever. Yeah. That's been another thing is like realizing, um, you know, and I don't think a lot of parents in normal circumstances would be like that. But when you're literally forced into a helicopter parenting situation, because you just have, you have to be in the same room like all the time it's really like weird trying to navigate that and be like, but mom or dad, you don't understand. Right. (laughs) You're not helping. (laughs) Plus you might like the kid might be wearing headphones and it's like, how do you talk to them in that case? There's a lot of layers to it. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's, it's such a weird time to, to do that, especially with someone calling you a teacher where it's like, I feel like you're more of a facilitator. Would right. you say? Right. We're therapists in training. We're facilitators. We're, um, we're not meant to be teachers. We're, but also a lot of the 
field takes place next to teachers. So it's very confusing. And I don't expect kids to get that. But yeah. it is something we different we we do differentiate it at the beginning. Uh, we try to tell them we're not trying to reach, you know, definitive goals here. We're just trying to progress with our emotions and learn from ourselves, that kind of thing. That's beautiful. That's like it's funny because that that's like literally the things I'm trying to get out of my own classroom at this point, because like, that's way more holistic. That's way more full, like beyond the surface level for, for a child or even an adult. That's really beautiful. Right. I think pre pandemic, it was much more understandable to have to reach certain goals. But at this rate, everyone's like, just do the bare minimum and that will be perfectly adequate. And if we can even get that, we'll be so beyond excited. So, yeah. I mean, it's just such a learning curve right now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's like the number one thing. I feel like we just need to like on every banner that says happy new year, like you did all right. Like everything's <laughs> You got a gold star. Yeah. You did great. And that's enough. Yeah. So I, I guess actually have your goals have shifted then as well in this cl- like clinical space where your, your goals are kind of more just that to that point then. Right. At this rate, if I can obtain my license in New York, I'll be happy. And if I can like strive to get a psychedelic therapy license, I'll be happy. You know, I'm at this rate reaching for the bare minimum and just trying to get by if i could graduate even that'll be great i missed that point like i have to graduate first yeah one step at a time well you do have your work in a store i would love for you to kind of like talk about that talk about where people can find you and and all your beautiful things sure um i am located in brooklyn and i only recently was connected with a retail space where um, I'll be placing just a few of my items. It's a huge co-retail space, and that can be found at Brooklyn Beauty Fashion Lavo, um, I guess, .com. I'm not really sure what their uh, social media presence is, but that's what they're called. my website is called mymindfulmanifestations.com and that's where you could peruse all of my designs and uh, artwork, my little trinkets. I have stickers. I make bookmarks. I just make whatever I, I see I can make and I put it online. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Miriam. Thank you so much for having this interview and it was such an absolute pleasure to pick your brain about this online world and art therapy. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Lauren. It was such a pleasure to speak with you as well.